Grace, mercy, and peace be unto you from God, our Father, and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. The portion of God's Word to which we draw our attention this evening is taken from Matthew's Gospel, 26th chapter, beginning at verse 26. Please rise as we hear these words. While they were eating, Jesus took bread and gave thanks. He broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, Take and eat, this is my body. Then he took a cup and spoke a prayer of thanks. He gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the last will and testament, which is being poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Thus far the text. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, these are your words. Make us holy through the truth. Your word is truth. Amen. You may be seated. I, John Doe, being of sound mind and body, do hereby and forthwith declare that this is my last will and testament, superseding all wills made heretofore, which wills shall now be null and void. I direct the following specific bequests be made from my estate. My house, cash, and automobiles shall be distributed to my wife. If she does not survive me or is not in existence, Thereupon, this bequest shall be distributed with my residuary estate. I can probably stop there, right? It's pretty exciting reading. When you start reading something, a legal document that is using terms that maybe we don't use in everyday conversation. Sometimes I even wonder if lawyers actually appreciate, if they, if they enjoy writing documents in such legalese to make it a little more difficult for us to understand. We have before us this evening the last will and testament of Christ Jesus. Now, you might not have heard that term before to to refer to what Jesus is saying and what he's doing in this passage, but it's actually pretty accurate to call it that. The word that we typically translate as covenant is actually better translated as testament, as in last will and testament. Consider the circumstances that support this translation. Jesus was about to die. And what does a person do many times who is about to die? He makes sure that all of his affairs, especially his will, is in order. Now, this was no ordinary will, of course, because Jesus was not just an average John Doe. Even so, the the important parts of the will were there. The one making the will, Jesus. A death, again, Jesus' death. The word of promise guaranteeing the will, Jesus' word. The heirs, that's us. The inheritance, what we receive. And fortunately for us, Jesus used very clear and precise language when he was laying out this will. So tonight we're going to look at the part of this will that affects us the most. And we'll see that we are the beneficiaries of Christ's last will and testament. The part of this last will and testament that affects us the most is the the fact that we are the recipients. We are the beneficiaries. And as beneficiaries, first off, we receive Christ himself. 
Now, in a normal will, that would be kind of strange to, to receive the one who's making the will. And especially, it might even sound a little morbid to do so because that person would have had to die. But Jesus is the one making the will. He makes us the beneficiaries. And that's part of the reason why we emphasize in this passage that that the bread and the wine that Jesus is talking about, the bread and the wine that he is giving to his disciples, wasn't just bread and wine, but it's his body and blood. They don't just represent Christ's body and blood, the bread and the wine. The belief that that the bread and wine symbolize the the, uh, body and blood of Christ is something that is held commonly, that belief is held commonly in in what we call the Reformed churches. The Reformed churches, they include all of the churches who have their roots going back to the Protestant Reformation, just like the Lutheran church has its roots going there. When Luther broke away from the Roman Catholic church, he started a new church. It wasn't his intention at first, but that's what happened. And there were other reformers at the time, two of them that perhaps are more well-known, John Calvin and Ulrich Zwingli. And churches such as the Baptist churches, uh, the Methodist churches, the Dutch Reformed churches, ultimately they have their roots going back to these two men. Now, there were differences between what these men believed and what Luther believed. Otherwise, they probably would have not had different churches being formed, but the same church. And their main prime, the, the main difference that they had was in the use of reason, the way that they used their minds. Calvin, and especially Zwingli, believed that in order to interpret Scripture correctly, that you had to make it make sense. You had to interpret it such that it made sense to your mind, to your reason. So when it came to the Lord's Supper, well, there was no way that that bread and wine could be the body and blood of Christ. Why? Because Jesus had ascended and he was in heaven. He still is in heaven. And he can't be in more than one place at a time. And so there's no way that Christ's body and blood could be in the supper. It just doesn't make sense. Does such a belief ever slip into our thinking? As with many of the miraculous teachings in the Bible, it's it's an easy enough thing to let happen. After all, we pride ourselves in, in what great minds we have, that we're logical and sensible people. How can we, being as reasonable as we are, actually believe that in the bread and wine of the supper, Christ's body and blood are also there. It just doesn't make sense. But the words that Jesus used when he was instituting this supper are very clear. He didn't use ambiguous language. In English, as it is in Greek, the language that the New Testament was written in, the word is means is. You can almost just put an equal sign there. And so when Jesus took that bread and he said, this is my body, he was saying this equals my body. 
Same thing with the cup. When he said, this is my blood. This equals my blood. Jesus wasn't using symbolical language. And so we do take Jesus at his word, even though we don't understand the how. And that's definitely, it, it definitely comes down to a matter of faith, doesn't it? If we don't understand it, if it doesn't make sense to our reason, we simply have to believe it. We do the same thing with so much that's in Scripture. Go back to the very beginning with creation. Does it make sense that God could create the entire universe the way that he did in six 24-hour days? Does it make sense that he would promise to send a Savior who was going to take care of all of the sins of all people of the entire world, anyone who's ever existed? Does it make sense that this Savior would come and be born of a virgin? Does it make sense that this Savior would be God and man at the same time? Does it make sense that that same Savior, that same God-man is going to come back at the end of the world and judge all people? Again, we take Jesus at his word. We believe what he said because of who he is. And because, in this case, his language was very clear. And so if in the last will and testament, Jesus promises to give us himself in the bread and the wine, we simply believe it. We are the beneficiaries and we receive what he gives. We receive the body and blood of Christ at the same time that we receive the bread and the wine. The other primary things that we receive as the beneficiaries of Christ's last will and testament are the forgiveness of sins, life, and salvation. These truly are are our lasting inheritance, the lasting benefits that we receive as his beneficiaries. Think about that word inheritance. It has a very specific meaning. Literally, it means to receive something of considerable value which has not been earned. In other words, it means that we don't do any work in order to attain it. One great example from the Bible, the Old Testament, think about the promised land. Well, the name itself should give us a clue. It's the promised land. When God first made that promise to Abraham to give him the land of Canaan, it was a promise. And that promise was passed down through Abraham's descendants until finally God's people, when they were rescued out of slavery in Egypt, they came and they took possession of that land. But did they do anything in order to to earn that land? Were they really obedient people and that's why God gave them that land? They definitely weren't being very obedient. Think about when they first came out from Egypt. What were they doing? They, they built a golden calf and were worshiping it. That land came to them as an inheritance. It was something that was promised to them. They didn't do anything to earn it or deserve it. And so also with the inheritance that we receive as beneficiaries of Christ's last will and testament, even though we are constantly unfaithful to God, even though we should be judged for our sins, even though 
we are in, in need of forgiveness. That is what Christ gives us by his grace, by Christ's love and mercy. Forgiveness of sins. It's such a common term. Sometimes we throw it around. Maybe we don't think about the, the full impact, the full importance of that statement, of that gift, of that part of our inheritance. Because of Christ's death, the death that he suffered for us, God does not count our sins against us. He forgives our sins. He wipes them out. The psalmist tells us in Psalm 103, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. And because we have our sins taken away from us, we also have life. We have life instead of death. We also have salvation instead of damnation. And that makes perfect sense because if our sins are what keep us from having life and those sins are gone, well then yes, we have life. We have salvation. There's nothing to keep us from receiving what our Lord wants to give us. It's an amazing inheritance. Let's say that your parents came to you and told you that they, that they wanted to give you something. Now, it's not Christmas. It's not your birthday. So you're trying to figure out why they, they're making this special uh, special event. But they give you an envelope. You open up the envelope. And inside the envelope is a check for a million dollars. Now, you're more than a little startled. And, and you say, well, what's this? And your parents say, well, we just wanted to give you your inheritance early, dear. What's wrong with that situation? Now, you can't say, well, my parents wouldn't have a million dollars to give me. That might be so, but that's not the point. The point is, is that typically, when does an inheritance come to you? It comes when someone dies. Someone has to die before that inheritance is passed down. And that's what makes our inheritance of the forgiveness of sins, of life and salvation possible. The death of Christ. When Christ died, his last will and testament went into effect. And so every time we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we receive what he has left us. You see, Jesus didn't just institute that supper with his disciples on Maundy Thursday and leave it at that. He wants us to continue to celebrate the supper so that we continue to receive the benefits of that supper. As Paul wrote to the Corinthians, every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you are proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. Yes, we continue to proclaim the Lord's death. Every time that we do, every time that we celebrate the supper, we are saying that Christ's last will and testament is in effect. That we are the beneficiaries of that last will and testament. So this evening, as we partake of the bread and the wine, we're also receiving Christ's body and blood. And as we eat that heavenly food, we receive the inheritance. We receive the benefits, the forgiveness of sins, life and salvation. Treasure this inheritance because it is eternal. And it means eternal life for us. Amen.